Well, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians as we close out our study of the book. Uh, It's been a joy uh, to be able to work through the book uh, with you, and uh, one way or another, I plan on ending our series this evening um, in the book, so... As we come to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, we looked at uh, Paul's attitude uh, in the book. We looked at especially uh, verses 10 through 13. And if you were to use one word to describe Paul's attitude, what one word would you choose? Open open Bible quiz uh, here this evening. What one word would you choose? Contentment. Yes, rejoicing early on, rejoicing the Lord greatly, but then especially being content. Uh, irregardless of the material provisions that he had, whether he was going through deprivation or whether he uh, was enjoying abundance, which I think for Paul wasn't very often. Uh, But if he enjoyed abundance, he was content. God had worked in him the secret. He had learned through experience that God always provides, always takes care of all of his needs. And so uh, this morning I really tried to emphasize that. And... um, If we could be content with what God has given us, uh, whether we're in seasons of deprivation or abundance, our church would be properly positioned uh, to care for each other. We wouldn't have greedy members who are focused entirely on their own needs. Uh, And uh, just so you know, I've only been here, what, five months. I don't know of any member like this uh, yet. I'm assuming we're not like this. This is just a challenge uh, to all of us. Uh, This evening, we're going to learn from the example of the Philippian Assembly— Uh, in their interaction with Paul, and we're going to look especially at their generosity. Now, kind of in a funny moment this evening, I thought, you know what, maybe we should take up the offering after the sermon uh, tonight, but uh, having said that, I just want to commend you. I'm very thankful for your generosity. It's been evident to me that you are giving church, Um, and so um, as we go through the material, I'm sure it will be an encouragement. It'll be a challenge, perhaps, in some ways, but I'm also uh, one to be positive Uh, I'm thankful for how God has been leading the church, how he's provided for this church abundantly since its inception. And I can say that uh, God is is really providing for our assembly as we close out the year here as well. Uh, So I do want to look, though, at the generosity of the Philippian congregation in verses 14 uh, through 20. Verses 14 through 20 are still connected to verses 10 through 13 in that they're one paragraph. But I want to remind you that they are parallel parts. There's like two sections in that both contain an immediate reminder of the gift that the Corinthians had, or that the Philippians had given uh, to Paul. Uh, up in verse 10, he had reminded them of that gift. At length, you've revived your concern for me, your thoughtful concern for me. Uh, and that's how he's going to start verse 14. Actually, verses 14 through 16 will be a reminder of the gift uh, that they had given to him as well. He's going to go a little bit more in detail about that gift. We talked about it a little bit this morning, but we'll, we'll remind you of those things. And then both of those, uh, em- those reminders of the gift are met with uh, immediate recognition or an acknowledgement concerning the gift. It should be, uh, I'm sorry, acknowledgement is really the key uh, term I would emphasize. Immediate um, acknowledgement or disclaimer. If you look in your Bibles at verse 11, it says, not that... Okay, where Paul's going to go into this, uh, like, like we discovered this morning, this, this uh, lengthy section where he t- 
talks about the fact that he really didn't need their gift. And then if you look at verse 17, he starts the same way, not that, and he goes into some disclaimers about their gifts and how he is related to that. And so uh, this evening, we'll look at the Philippians' attitude and their generosity. If I were to summarize verses 14 through 20, I would say the Philippians' attitude is this. It's generosity even when they didn't have a lot. Paul was content even when he didn't have a lot. And the Philippians are generous even when they don't have a lot. Let's, let me read through the text, and then we'll make comments upon it. Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So as we get in this text, we look first at Paul's initial recognition of their gift, verses 14 through 16. Their gifts revealed something to Paul to help Paul understand something, especially understanding uh, the level of the Philippians' partnership uh, to him. Verse 14 starts out with the word yet. In some translations, it's translated nevertheless. It, it really is Paul adding a comment to the disclaimer that he just made. He had just said in verses 11 through 13 that he was not dependent upon their financial gift in any way, because God could give and provide for him. He wasn't dependent upon their gift, yet, nevertheless, he's still thankful for their gift to him. And that's how uh, verses 14 through 16 uh, function here. Especially, he says he's thankful for their kindness. When he uses the word kind here, it can be translated that they did good or they did well. You did well to share in my trouble. And uh, as we keep learning here, as we learned this morning even, uh, the Philippians had given to Paul repeatedly in his journey in verses 14 through 16. He describes the gifts that they gave him way back after the church plant when, when in Macedonia they gave, the text says, once and again, or on several occasions. More specifically in these verses, we see that the Philippians' gift was a way for them to enter into partnership with Paul in his troubles. You see that there? In his troubles or afflictions. Paul knew all about troubles. As a matter of fact, as you read through the New Testament epistles, uh, you see the sort of things that he describes here uh, in in all kinds of different passages. Uh, For just a few moments, what I would like to do is I'd like to consider another book of the Uh, New Testament canon that Paul wrote, and consider how or what Paul has to say about the afflictions or troubles uh, that he faced in this book, I'd invite you to turn for just a moment to 2 Corinthians. If you do that for me this evening, 2 Corinthians. Uh, The goal of 2 Corinthians, I believe, uh, Paul is attempting to get some within the Corinthian assembly to reconcile to him. I taught Corinthian epistles for years in Bible college, and I would always say the theme of 1 Corinthians 
uh, is Paul bringing reconciliation between different members in the assembly. They were all divided up following different apostles. Some liked Apollos, some liked Paul, some liked Peter. And so one of the driving themes of 1 Corinthians is uh, that they would be reconciled to each other. When you turn to 2 Corinthians, a lot of things have happened in the one year since he wrote 1 Corinthians. But when you get to 2 Corinthians, the theme of this would be Paul is attempting to secure a reconciliation between himself and some of the Corinthians. Okay, so if it was reconciliation between members in 1 Corinthians, there's some within the Corinthian assembly who now have a problem with Paul. They don't like his gifts, they don't like his style of ministry. Some within the assembly don't like his job, perhaps. They don't like his thorn in the flesh and the weakness that that demonstrates. They don't like his physical appearance. You remember some of the places in the book where the Corinthians talk about that? And so what Paul does in 2 Corinthians is he actually frames the whole book around four passages about his own suffering and weakness. And the premise that Paul's trying to establish in 2 Corinthians is that instead of the troubles that he is facing, instead of that being a sign of God's judgment or persecution upon him, or the fact that God doesn't work through Paul's ministry, it's actually a sign of God's power. He's actually, in many ways, giving them a picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. And so 2 Corinthians, in my opinion, the the entire structure is formed around four significant suffering passages. I want to just read some of these for you. Look at 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. First warning passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You begin to see some of the sufferings here, but flip over one page to chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, to the second major passage on suffering in the book. Again, what's Paul doing with these suffering texts in 2 Corinthians? He's acknowledging all of the ways he's been afflicted, but he's doing so so that they might uh, not reject him, but actually be reconciled to him. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, the apostles, but life in you. Again, he's acknowledging some of the afflictions and trials that he faces this is an important part to the structure of 2 Corinthians. Let's look at one other. I'll give you the fourth one in case you want to look at it sometime. The fourth warning passage would be near the end of the book in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 
23 through 12.10, where he talks about the great afflictions and trials that he faced there as well. But turn to 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 10 for a brief moment. Again, I want you to become aware of some of the troubles that Paul faced in ministry. Verse 4, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, impostors, and yet we are true. Verse 9, as unknown, I love this one, as unknown and yet well known. Maybe God knows them. As dying, and behold, we live as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. In 2 Corinthians, Paul acknowledges the many troubles that he is facing, I believe, in an effort to claim that actually God is using the afflictions so that some within the Corinthian assembly would actually embrace him as an apostle and not reject him because of his weakness and bodily presence. Go back to Philippians now for a moment, though. One of the things I observe with the Philippian assembly, you know, if the Corinthians would reject him, perhaps, because of his many troubles. The Philippians, however, bought into Paul and his ministry. They gave to him repeatedly so that he might minister the gospel to other people. And so as Paul is describing in verse 14, them becoming partners with or sharing with, uh, he acknowledges the fact that they're sharing with him in his troubles. You imagine uh, someone perhaps like Lydia, uh, the seller of purple, found in the book of Acts, who's a convert of Paul the Apostle, working hard at her craft or trade so that she might be able to give some to the Apostle Paul as he's imprisoned or Rome, in Rome. Perhaps you can imagine the Philippian jailer instructing his household to work together, to scrap and save, to live, to live cheaply and wisely so that they might give generously to the work of Paul the Apostle. Or maybe you could imagine a formerly demon-possessed young lady, young woman, whose, lives, whose life was changed by the Apostle, who now works hard so that she might on occasion send him a gift. I think moved by their sacrifice, Paul assures them in this text that his God will help them. So he acknowledges the gift, verses 14 through 16. They're a special church and that only they are the ones giving uh, to him in this ministry. But then, starting in verses 17 through 20, he attaches to this, uh, this reminder of their gift some immediate disclaimers I actually see two, the way I outline this. Uh, the first disclaimer is verse 17. The second one 
uh, would be verses 18 through 20. The first way that Paul attaches a disclaimer to this in verse 17 is I think he says something like this. I don't want your money, but I do want you to be credited with fruit. Uh, This is one of the reasons he would accept their gift. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here Paul is basically telling them he is not into them for their money. Paul wants the Philippians, he wants to prevent the Philippians from coming to the conclusion that he is only interested in them for their financial support. Walter Hansen, a commentator in the book of Philippians, who's been really helpful to me throughout the study, uh, said it this way. He said, Paul insists that his motive is not his self-interest, but their interest. And then Hansen translates this phrase, he says, what I desire more, uh, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. More particularly, the text says that Paul longs for them to secure the fruit that would come to believers as they invest materially in the work of the gospel. And so I think Paul's teaching here that God may attribute fruit to a believer for how he or she gives sacrificially for the work of the ministry. And so this first disclaimer is, I don't want your money, but I do want you to be credited with fruit, perhaps eternal fruit. The second disclaimer, and this is how I'd summarize verses 18 through 20, is uh, I think Paul basically says, I've been paid in full. You have been very generous to me. You've given me this gift. I understand that. I recognize that even after the church plant visit you gave to me. But I want you to know that I've been paid in full. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Paul also wants to make it clear to the Philippians that he does not need any more from them. Not only am I not into you for your money, I don't need anything else. He says, I've received full payment and even more. It's like a bill, it's like a statement. As if the Philippians owed him anything at all, he gives this like stamp, fully paid and more. Paul is well covered. His needs are taken care of. He doesn't need any more uh, from them at all. But the rest of this paragraph then, starting in the middle of verse 18, I think he, he elaborates a little bit more on how God the Father is actually connected to their giving. And so uh, for the remaining time we have left here, I just want to make a few statements about their giving as it relates to God. In the middle part of verse 18, I think he teaches us that the giving of the Philippian believers was actually an act of worship to God. If you look in verse 18, the middle, he says this gift from Epaphroditus was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here Paul moves away from financial terms and agricultural terms to terms of worship. The gifts of the Philippians were a fragrant offering. That word, those words would be used often in the Old Testament in the Septuagint to describe the offerings of the Old Testament priests and Old Testament Israel. They were fragrant offerings. And they were pleasing and acceptable sacrifices uh, to God. 
So I think Paul gets this language from the Old Testament, but he'll use it repeatedly in his letters. Uh, For instance, in 2 Corinthians, he will use these phrases to describe the nature of his own apostolic ministry. His own ministry, although it reeks of death to some people, some people just think he, you know, the whole thing smells like death. He's going to die. Paul says it's actually a, a, a fragrant offering and a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God there. But here he uses these words to describe the sacrificial giving and support of the Philippian believers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he uses these words, I think he's making the point that when we give sacrificially for the advance of the gospel, it is an act of worship to Almighty God. That's how he would see it. Sacrificial giving might actually become even more difficult for God's people as we move forward. Just a few months ago, someone brought to me an article. It was actually from the Church Finance Today, something I don't subscribe to, but uh, someone else I know does in October. And the whole article was about the present commitment of believers, I believe, in Baptist churches. It was a current study. And uh, there's several interesting parts of the study. I thought I'd just give you a few of these. Um, the article suggested that many churches are actually experiencing a decline in their giving. And they had statistical evidence to back that up. Some of the general trends that were, were very interesting to me is that the same, although giving was as way down, the number of giving units has remained the same. One of the conclusions of the article is that older givers are now retiring to fixed incomes, and they can't perhaps give the way that they do, they used to. And then the article goes on to say that younger givers are stretched thin by increased costs connected to some bills that perhaps older givers uh, never really had. And so some of the things they point out in the article is increased costs regarding entertainment and technology, cell phone bills, right, computers, cable TV, and debt loads from education. So the, the, the conclusion, concluding part of this study that just was done is that younger givers are not picking up the slack from the older givers. I think without question, God has used the sacrifice and the sacrificial dedication of former generations of believers in this church. When I look around at all the things that God has given to us, all the ways that he has blessed us, it's very obvious to me that there have been hours spent and much money given over the years to, for the Lord to give us the facilities that we presently enjoy. And the very fact that we're sitting in a building like this one, and there was a time when this building was not here. I know it's, uh, for some of you, you can remember that time. But what that's an indication of is I think that's an indication of sacrifice, dedication of hardworking men and women who are willing to give much to the Lord. And now for, for future generations, hopefully for years and years and years, our church will be able to benefit from the sacrifice and the commitment and the giving of these people to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. But as we move into the future, I I would suggest that it's very important for us all to have a very strong commitment to advancing the gospel. And if that means through financial giving, so be it. As I was uh, 
meditating upon this uh, a little bit, I came across the story of J. Hudson Taylor. I've been impressed with his testimony in several places, but um, one way that he really impacted me about three or four years ago was I read of Hudson Taylor's determination to condition himself to live simply and cheaply so that he could give his resources to gospel ministry. So before J. Hudson Taylor hit the field, he trained himself at one point to live off of a small bag of rice in order to get used to the poverty conditions that he would face on the field. And he wouldn't even allow himself any butter uh, with the rice. Okay, not even butter, right? Just, just rice. While on the field, he wrote back to his friend one time in a journal, he said, or in a note, he said, my, my need is great and urgent, but my God is greater still. We have 25 cents in all the promises of God. Herein is our joy and rest. I envy not the sinner's gold. It fill for Taylor in his response to the need for money. Once Taylor went to London to meet with a, a wealthy Russian man who gave him some money. The man meant to give him five pounds. I don't know how much that is, but some of you might. Five pounds. Instead, he gave him 50 pounds. So Taylor went to the man and tried to give the money back, and the man responded by saying, you know what? Uh, I meant to give you five pounds, but I gave you 50. God must have wanted you to have 50 pounds. You need to keep it. The story continues. It's an amazing story that a little bit later on, Taylor joined a small church who was pray, praying because of an open door to China missions to send laborers forward. And they, they were short 49 pounds and 11 pennies. And so Taylor took his blank note on the table, he put it on the table for 50 pounds, and he said this, he asked this question, he said, could it have come any more directly from the Father's hand? I've been impressed recently by the example of a well-known evangelical preacher. If I were to give you his name, you would all know who he is. One of the reasons I've been impressed by him and impacted by his testimony is because I know a close personal friend of his who works in the ministry that he's associated with. This evangelical preacher has, has been published by Crossway and Kriegel and Baker. He, I think he's published over 40 books. Now, normally in Christian publication, you, you're not in it for the money. Okay? But my, what my friend told me was that this preacher, uh, has, he has actually made hundreds of thousands of dollars in writing. Then one day I was going through the city and I drove by his house and someone pointed to me. It was just a row house in the city. My friend said this preacher has never kept one penny from any of his publications, but has it with every cent reinvested it in or for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's actually a great example, says Hudson Taylor. They're great examples of the premise of living cheaply and wisely so that we might give generously to the work of God. So is the Philippian church. I mean, so you go back to the text, and I appreciate you humoring me for some of those illustrations. I found them really challenging to me this, this, this week. Is you go back into the text, and you look at Philippians 4, 
And uh, this passage, you see that the Philippians gave. This was an act of worship. It was a sacrificial thing. It was pleasing to God. Then in verse 19, he attaches with this statement a promise of sorts when he teaches us that God responds to our generosity. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In verse 19, the main point here is that God responds to our generosity. In a sense, God's got his own kind of divine ledger, and he will reward us, and he will help those who give sacrificially. He will meet their needs. And I love how Paul describes the fact that God will meet their needs. Notice how he describes or how he identifies God here. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. It's like Paul is giving a beaming testimony here. Paul himself has been through it. He's been through deprivation. He's been through opportunities to give. And God has always provided for him. And so as he looks at the Philippian assembly and he's moved by their gift to him, he says, my God, my God will meet every one of your needs. According to his riches and glory, in proportion to his abundant wealth and provisions. Of course, the underlying premise here is that God is never at an end of his resources. He owns everything on the planet. He can do whatever he wants. And according to his riches, he will meet the needs of those who give generously to the support of the gospel ministry of Paul the Apostle. That leads to the last point I want to make, and that's the way he ends here in verse 20. Third, we learn God receives all the glory from this. And so Paul ends in a powerful way with a doxology. Verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. One commentator by the name of, last name of Melek said it this way. He said, The doxology expresses a prayer concerning the affairs discussed in the epistle. Through whatever means in every age and through all creatures, may God be glorified. And I think Paul just about as powerfully as he can in a doxology, ascribes all of the glory for whatever amazing work occurs as a result of his ministry or their gift, or whatever is produced, Paul issues this, it's, it's actually an imperative or a command to God and Father be the glory forever and ever. And then he wraps it all up with this confirming amen, or may, may that be. And so in response to the wonderful way that God provides and the amazing work that he performs, Paul knows that God should receive all of the glory and the honor, the recognition. We come through this part of the text again. I'm just uh, I want to exalt the attitude of the Philippian assembly. They gave repeatedly. Paul acknowledges it and says that because of their giving, God will meet all of their needs. 
Now, as we look to the end of the book, I should say something, right, about the conclusion. Most preachers don't say anything about that. I think I can say something in a minute or two here. He ends with just your normal conclusion, right, in verses 21 through 23. In many ways, he sends greetings from all kinds of people in, in Rome. Paul himself greets the Philippian assembly, some of the believers who were with him, probably some uh, co-workers in the gospel who are in Rome, greet them as well. All the saints, perhaps anyone who's a believer in Rome, sends greeting to the church of Philippi, and then especially those who are of Caesar's house. While there's all kinds of different ways you can understand that phrase, I think that Paul is trying to encourage them by showing them that the gospel is making inroads into the very household of Caesar. Maybe some of his servants, maybe some of his family have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and so Paul includes them. He doesn't normally include a group like this in a close. But he says, those who are Caesar's household also send you greeting. He closes with this grace wish, verse 23, that he, clo- that he uses in many of his letters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with each one of your spirits. He encourages the Corinthian church with the same wish that he had started the letter here and their challenge to grace. Again, I want to close this sermon the way I started. I want to commend you for your sacrificial giving. I've not only observed many of you give in support of this ministry, I've seen you give to people as they come in, Preachers I've had, we've, we've had here. I've seen you give to support missionaries. And uh, as we consider the Philippians, I would challenge you to, uh, to, to really evaluate your priorities and see if there are ways that you too can uh, live cheaply and wisely so that you might give generously to the work of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for the book of Philippians. Even as we wrap it up, Lord, there might not seem to be earth-shattering points in the close of an epistle. But Lord, we know that every word is inspired by your Spirit. And that you've chosen for this text to be included in the epistle to the Philippians. You've chosen for their example of being a dirt poor but a giving church to be in the text. And Lord, uh, as we evaluate our own lives, may we be in some ways uh, frivolous or frugal, I'm sorry, frugal, with our funds, Lord, with the money that you give to us so that we might have to give to the advance of the gospel. And I thank you for our assembly, and I pray, dear Father, that you would, you would meet all of their needs according to your riches and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.